It's a day he'll never forget. Up to this point in his life, everything had made so much sense. And it figured out, nailed down. He knew who he was. He knew where he was headed. His life journey was ahead of him. From the time he was a boy, he was born into a very conservative Jewish home. He was raised with the law of God. When he was very young, he moved 350 miles away to be trained under one of the most famous rabbis of the day. And so when the new movement started, it was hard for him to believe that anyone could buy into this absurd claims. But what was so frustrating is no matter what the authorities did, nothing they could do would slow it down. And so he felt like it was his patriotic duty to volunteer, to help in any one ways he could. And as one of the rising young stars of his community, his job, one of his first assignments, was to go door-to-door searches throughout the city to look for followers of this new movement, to root them out, to pull them out of their homes, to beat them in front of their families, to arrest them, take them into custody. If they refuse to recant, to throw them into prison and vote for their execution. But no matter how much violence, how much persecution the authorities brought, the movement continued to grow, spread, expand. And so that's how it was. He found himself this day 135 miles away, north of his new home, leading a team of spiritual bounty hunters, looking for members of this new movement to bring back and to stand trial. And it was about noon that day that it happened. And we gathered today here at Easter, 2015, to celebrate one of the greatest events, the greatest event in human history, a day that would change forever. That one spring morning, outside of Jerusalem, an event happened that rocked the world. But the reality was that even then as now, most were skeptics, most didn't believe. And this is his story that he was one of those skeptics. His name was Saul. He'd been brought up in a university city in southern Turkey, in the city of Tarsus. He'd been born into a very conservative Jewish family. From the time he was young, he'd been raised on the law and the prophets of Israel. And as a young child, he was extremely prodigious. He was brilliant. His parents saw brilliance all over him. And so they applied to be tutored under one of the greatest rabbis of their day, a man named Gamaliel. And he was accepted into the school of Gamaliel, and he made the trip, perhaps by himself as a, as a young, perhaps teenager, 350 miles south, think San Francisco to Chatsworth, to live in the capital of Judaism, Jerusalem. And there he was raised, and there he memorized Torah. 
and there he memorized the prophets, and there he learned all the ins and outs of one of the most conservative strains of Judaism of his day. He excelled. He was the top of his class. He was excelling beyond all his peers. He was one of the young, bright, rising stars of Judaism. And so when this new movement that was called The Way started, based on this absurd and ludicrous claim that this backwater rabbi from the northern kind of boundary waters of the nation, who had been recently arrested, brought up on charges of high treason against Rome, and executed on a Roman cross, the claim was that this was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Everything about this claim was absolutely absurd. If you know anything about messiahs, the first thing you know is messiahs win. They don't lose. They destroy their enemies. They aren't destroyed by their enemies. They live. They don't die. The idea that the Messiah of Israel, the great king of Israel that was going to usher in the kingdom of God had been arrested and tried and executed on a Roman cross, put to public humiliate, was the great Messiah, was ludicrous. It was beyond him that anyone with any modicum of education at all could buy it. And yet, the movement continued to spread and grow. It was threatening the very underpinnings of the faith. And so as one of the bright rising stars of Judaism, he offered his services to the authorities. One of his first assignments was to go door to door throughout Jerusalem. I'm not making this up. This is his own personal story. He would pull men and women out from their homes, away from their kids. He would beat them to cause them to blaspheme and curse the name of Jesus. If they refused, he would take them into custody, put them in prison, up on charges where they would be voted for execution. He was so passionate about rooting out this cause that as the movement of Jesus spread, that when someone was needed to go to Damascus, which is 135 miles away north of Jerusalem, still there today, one of the oldest cities in the world, that he volunteered to lead a team of spiritual bounty hunters. Think dog. (laughs) To travel north to arrest followers of this false prophet Jesus of Nazareth and to bring him back into custody. And as he's approaching the city of Damascus, as he tells the story, and I'm sure he told it many times in his life, it was about noon. He remembers because he was hungry. (laughs) And as he's approaching the city, all of a sudden, he sees this bright light, brighter than the sun. And he's a Jew. He's educated in Torah. He knows what he's seeing. He is seeing what the prophets saw in the Old Testament. He is seeing what Moses saw at Mount Sinai. He is seeing the glory of God. 
God himself, this God he's been searching for his whole life, this God he's been studying Torah his whole life, this God he's been learning the rules and following the his whole life in order to see this God and to know this God and be accepted by this God, this God is appearing to him. As he sees the glory of God and he falls to the ground, the the, the, the light is so bright, it will burn his retina. He will be blind for the next three days. But as he sees the glory of God, he sees a person in the midst of the glory. And he knows it's God. Who else could it be? And he says, who are you, Lord? And the words come back that would chill him to the bone. The words come back that I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. For those of us who've been longtime Christ followers, we often look at this account in the rearview mirror and we think, what an awesome thing for Paul to see the resurrected Jesus. But can I tell you, at that moment, that was the last thing Paul was thinking. What he's thinking is, I am toast. <laughs> he was scared, can we say spitless? That's very biblical, we'll come to it later. He's scared. He's scared to his life is flashing before his eyes. Catch this, his whole life he has been pursuing the God of Israel. His whole life has been dedicated to the studying of Torah, to learning the rules, jumping through the hoops, so at the end of time, when Messiah comes, he will be accepted and justified and proclaimed righteous and be part of the coming kingdom of God. His whole life has been invested in pursuing God, and now he finds out that instead of pursuing God, he has been persecuting God. And this God is showing up to render judgment. And he is scared, frightened, full of dread and despair because his religion has led him to judgment. And in that moment, what happens next will change him for the rest of his life. Because in that moment where he expects to be fried, it turns out that Jesus has come not to destroy him, but to save him, to rescue him. He knows his name, and he has come to love him and to reveal to him the God he's been searching his, his whole life. And not only does he love him, and not only does he forgive him for the beatings and the whippings and the executions of his people, but he tells him he's been chosen to be a special messenger of Jesus to share the message that his resurrection is real, that the stories that he thought were ludicrous are real, that his death and his resurrection are, that seemed so oxymoronic before are actually true. And in that moment, 
everything changed for the Apostle Paul. Everything changed. All things became new. And what I want to do on this Easter weekend, 2015, is, is I want to go to a letter that the Apostle Paul would write 30 years after this encounter with the resurrected Jesus, where he spells out how all things became new, what changed in his life as a result of meeting the resurrected Jesus. And of course, the reason I'm sharing it today is because these are exactly the things that change in our life when we move from skepticism to experiencing a resurrected Jesus. And so there in your note sheet, if you haven't taken it out, I encourage you to do so. It'll help you follow along. We're on the second page, I think it is. Obviously, many of you have it. <laughs> I can hear the rustling. You know, there's a section there called the resurrection something new. And I want to talk about three new things that came into Paul's life that changed him forever as a result of meeting the resurrected Jesus. The first thing is a new relationship. And I'm talking about a new relationship with God. You see, Paul had been searching for God his whole life. If he had a theme song, it would be the U2. Remember U2, 1987, iconic band? I still haven't found what I'm searching for. Right, this is Paul's story. For some of you here, this may be why you're here today. For some of you here, you may have been searching for God for years. For some of you here, uh, your search has, has been through Hinduism. Your search has been through Buddhism. Your search has been through Mormonism. Your search has been through Islam. Your search has been through Oprahism. But the reality is, you still haven't found what you're looking for. You've learned a lot of things, you've tried a lot of things, but there is a hunger in your heart for a relationship with God that is real, it's authentic, it's genuine, you know it's true. And this is Paul's story. His life had been invested in the pursuit of God. But what he found out that day is he'd been on the wrong road. He'd been running hard in the wrong direction. Because up to that point, the way Paul saw a relationship with God, and I think this is the way we naturally see a relationship with God, is we see a relationship with God is something we earn. We, we think that a relationship with God is something that we deserve. We, we think it's something that we will merit. And so if we're serious about a relationship with God, we start pursuing whatever the path it is, whether it's Paul's path of Judaism or the four pathways of Buddhism or meditation so we can learn the way out of the illusory world in Hinduism or whether it's praying five times a day of Islam, we begin doing whatever we've been taught that this is what you need to do to pursue God. This is what you need to do. And if you do enough and you do it the right way, then you can enter into a relationship with God. This is the heart of religion. It doesn't matter what religion, all religion shares this in common. It says this is what you need to do in order 
to merit a relationship with God. And if you do it well enough, you will be righteous, and then God will have a relationship with you. And so we're hungry for a relationship with God, and so if we pursue him, we pursue him this way. And this has been Paul's story. And from the time he was young, this had been the pursuit of his life. One of the things that made no sense when he first heard the story of Jesus, this crucified supposed Messiah that he saw as a false prophet, blasphemous, one of the things that made no sense is this part about Messiah die. As I said before, Messiahs don't die, they kill. They, they destroy, they win. That's what Messiahs do, they come drive out Rome. They don't die, they don't lose. The death of Messiah made no sense, but after he met Jesus and found out that Jesus was the Messiah, he had to go back to the scripture and say, how did I miss this? And as he went back, he found there in Isaiah 53, there was prophesied that when the Messiah came, that he would die for the sins of the nation. That the nation of Israel that had rebelled against God all these years, that one would come who would take the sin of the nation of Israel. It would be his life for their life, the one for the many, the great exchange. And as Paul began to reflect on this, he began to understand why Messiah had to die. But what God began to show him was it wasn't just for the sins of Israel. It was for the sins of the world. That we've all rebelled against our creator. We have all gone our own way. We have all lived as if God doesn't exist. We have all known right and chosen wrong. We have all made other things in our life our true God, our highest value. We have all worshiped and served the creation instead of the creator. And we're all under judgment. We're all under uh, a sentence of death for our high treason against our true king. And what Paul began to realize is that no amount of religion, no amount of good works, no amount of good intentions can change that basic fact that we are all on death row. And so what he began to understand that day is meeting the resurrected Jesus is that there is a way to be right with God that has nothing to do with our performance, that has everything to do with his performance. And so in Philippians chapter 3, Paul begins to talk about how he looked at a relationship with God before he met Jesus and how he looked at it after he met Jesus. And so if you look there at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, and I put these verses on your note sheet. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's fine. But if you do, I'd encourage you to open them up. Philippians chapter 3, and we'll start in the middle of verse 4. Paul says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, and by this he means spiritual confidence in my own human achievements, my spiritual resume, what I've done to, to earn God's favor. He said, if anyone thinks he has reasons, I have more. My, my whole life was devoted to this pleasing God thing. And he begins going through his spiritual resume. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born into the nation of Israel, and the first commandment for a male 
is that you'd be circumcised the eighth day. That's how you start the, to walk out the Torah. That's how you start to do the right thing. You, you get circumcised the eighth day. He says, so my, my parents carried that out. And he said, I was, I was uh, born of the people of Israel, the chosen nation. In fact, he says, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. So he says, I, I, I was born into a very famous tribe, one of the 12 tribes. It was a tribe of Benjamin. It was from the tribe of Benjamin, the first king of Israel had come. His name was Saul. And so when this baby was born, his parents named him after the greatest leader of their tribe. They named him Saul. You're destined for greatness. And he said, so I was born a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's a way of saying a very conservative Jew really following the law. He says, in regard to the law, the Torah, the Old Testament, I was a Pharisee, one of the strictest religious sects of his day. As for zeal, kind of a passion for God, we've already seen that, persecuting the church, you know, 135 miles away from home just to please God and root out this heresy. And as for legalistic righteousness, in other words, uh, being right with God based on keeping all the rules, the laws. He said, I was faultless. I kept them all. He says, but then I met Jesus, and everything changed. And, and I entered this, I came to know God. It was a real relationship. And he says, whatever was to my profit, so think profit and loss column here. He says, all the things that you stack up, what I had going for me, born into the tribe of Benjamin, the nation of Israel, circumcised the A3, travel to Jerusalem, study under Gamaliel, excel in my class, be the top, top student of my day, the zeal, all those things that I would have put in the prophet column before is God look at me, uh, accept me, love me, look what I've achieved. He says, all those in the prophet column, he says, now I move those things over to the lost column. Everything I saw was an advantage. I now see it was a disadvantage because if you're on the wrong road, the faster you run, the further you get from your destination. He was on the wrong road. He was on the road to self-righteousness. And the further and harder he ran, the further away from God he was going. And so he says in verse 8, whatever is more, what's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Remember, Christ in the Greek means Messiah. So whenever you see Christ, think Messiah. Of knowing Messiah Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul was on the fast track to success. In our culture, he would be Harvard Law School, top of his class, top student, except the top law firm on partnership track, destined for greatness, that's Paul. All that goes with that, the, the power, the prestige, the money, the possessions, uh, popularity, that was Paul. And then he met Jesus, and catch this, the moment he met Jesus, he lost everything. Within two weeks, he went from being the persecutor to the persecuted. Over the next 30 years of his life, he would be whipped, he would be stoned, old-fashioned way, he would be <laughs> beaten, he would be imprisoned, and he would be shipwrecked, 
and he would be attacked by robbers, and he would be executed and beheaded in 35 years, 33 years after he met Jesus for the cause of Christ. He lost everything he had. But Paul says, you don't understand it. What I got was so much more than what I gave up, I would make that deal in an instant. And, and he, he goes on to talk about what he got. He says, first he says, uh, uh, for the, uh, he said, uh, verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Messiah my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them, what's the next word? Rubbish. This is the word I was re- uh, talking about, referring to earlier. The, the translators here pull back a little bit, right? Rubbish. Like, I don't use that word. That sounds like British or something, right? Like, my wife never says to me, hey, honey, would you take out the rubbish? Right? We use the word trash, right? It's trash. But catch this. The word in Greek is skubala. And skubala means trash or it means dung. I also don't use that word. But I'm not going to use the word that we use. Paul says, hey, Everything I saw before were my greatest achievements, my richest blessing, the power, the prestige, the popularity, the possessions, the financial track. He says, can I tell you something? I used to see that in the wind column. He says, now I have found Jesus. And he said, it is like scubula. It's a pile of scubula. It's as far as I'm going. <laughs> Don't you get your hopes up. All right. And he says, I consider them scubala, that I may gain Messiah, and I may be found in him, in this new relationship. Catch this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, keeping the rules, but that which is through faith in Christ, his life for my life, his death for my death. He takes my sentence. I get credit for his life, and I enter into a relationship with this God. And this is something that Paul never got over, this God who loved him, this God who came after him when he was his enemy. And I don't know if you're here today, like what your story is or what your background, and if you have not come to Christ, you may think, I've gone too far. I've 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 got too much in my resume for God to love me. I have too many abortions. I have too much pornography. I've got too much sexual sin. I've got too much betrayal. I've murdered people. I've been in prison. I've been addicted to drugs. I've committed affairs. I've committed adultery. I have lived for other gods. My job has been my God. Money has been my God. I don't think this God would want me because there's nothing about me that would make him want me because I'm violated everything. I just came to church today because my neighbor invited me and I couldn't get out of it. (laughs) And this is how I hold my marriage together. I go once a year. What I'm here to tell you today is Paul says, it doesn't matter who we are, or what we've done. He said, you cannot commit a greater crime than persecuting Messiah. 
And he said, my life is a case study that Jesus always cares more where you're going than where you're coming from. And if you want a relationship with God today, I want to tell you, there is a God who loves you. And there is a God who's paid a price and made a way for you to come home and to receive a new relationship with God and has nothing to do with your resume. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has to do with a God who loved you so much that he sent his son to take your place and your judgment so you could go free, so your chains could be broken. This is what Easter is about. It's about a new relationship, and that is what Paul experienced that day on the road to Damascus. His old paradigms were broken and shattered and left in ruins. A new paragraph, a new paradigm entered into his life that he could know God and he could have a real relationship with God, what he'd been searching for his whole life. He could enter into this relationship with God, a God who loved him, cared him, him knew him before he was born. And he could enter into relationship with God, not based on his performance, but based on the performance of Messiah. Amen? And that is what Easter is about. It is good news, men and women. It is good news. It means it doesn't matter where you've come from or what you've done. If you want to come home, if you want to be forgiven, if you want a relationship with God, if you want to know the living God, he wants you. Amen. 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 Now, the second thing that Paul discovered that day was a new life. You see, Paul, his whole life, had been trying to live up to God's demands. Paul loved the law of God. I think this is something, for those of you who are longtime Christ followers, I think this is something we, we miss, that Paul loved the law of God. I mean... Think back at Psalm 119. Right, before Jesus, Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. If I remember right, 176 verses. All about the law of God, the Torah. The Torah means the instruction of God. The way that the best of the Jews saw it is the law of God is the path to life. One of my favorite Verses in Psalm 119 is in verse 32 where the psalmist says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Your word is a light to my path. Your word has made me wiser than all my teachers, he writes. Your law has enlarged my life. You see, the best of Judaism saw the law not only is the word of God, but is a path to life. Jesus would come later standing strong in that Jewish tradition. He would say, all the law and all the prophets really are just explaining what it means to love God and to love one another. Paul loved the law of God. He believed it was a path to life. The problem with Paul that he writes about later is that The law can tell us the path to life, but it can't give us the power to walk it. It's one thing to say, don't be jealous. It's one thing to say, don't take revenge. It's one thing to say, forgive. It's one thing to say, be patient. It's one thing to say, love God above all others. It's one thing to say, love your neighbor as yourself, but it's another thing to do it. 
almost every religion of the world will teach some form of the golden rule. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor, some form of that. The problem with the moral code of religion is not that the moral code is wrong. If you study the great religions of the world, the moral code's very similar. The problem with religion is it can tell us what to do. It cannot give us the power to do it. It doesn't matter how many self-help books we read. It doesn't matter how many episodes of Oprah we watch. It doesn't matter how many sessions from Dr. Phil we have. It doesn't matter what the religion is or how much you study. It doesn't matter how much you meditate or how much self-discipline or willpower you apply. All religion can do is behavior modification. It can't change us from the inside out. It can't give us a new heart. It can't create a new love. It can't create a love for others over love for self. Religion doesn't have the power to rescue. Religion kills. It tells you what to do, no power to do it, therefore it sentences you to death. And this was Paul's story. He had spent his life mastering Torah. Paul very likely had memorized the entire first five books of the Bible, almost certainly. He had memorized huge parts of the prophets. He knew the law of God. But up to that point in his life, he was deeply dissatisfied because he didn't have the power. And when he met Jesus, he began to understand the other side of the equation. Why does Messiah have to die? It makes no sense. Messiah has to die for the sins of the world, that we could be forgiven. But the other side of the equation is why did Messiah have to rise? And what Paul discovered that day as he met the resurrected Jesus is that Jesus not only died for us, he rose for us so that when we put our trust in him and follow him, we are organically linked to him through the gift of his spirit. And the power of the resurrection flows into our life and does for us what we could never do for ourselves that we, it links us with the spiritual power of Jesus to change. And Paul often talks about this in his writings, but he talks about it here in Philippians. Look at 3.10. We ended up at 3.9. So in 3.10, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Messiah. He says, I've come to know him. Now remember, this is 30 years after he met resurrected Jesus. But he says, I just, I want to go deeper and to know him. I want a deeper relationship. It's a passion of my life. And he says, but I don't just want to know Messiah. I want to know the power of his, what? Resurrection. And so when a man or woman comes to Jesus and steps into this new relationship with God, not based on our performance, based on his, the Holy Spirit comes into our life Jesus himself through the Spirit comes in our life and he begins to empower us to live a new life. He begins to change us from the inside out. And this is a change transformation process that will go on until he returns again. It starts when we come to Christ. And so this is something religion can never do. It tells us what to do, no power to do it. And so if you're here today 
and you say, I haven't yet come to Christ, this is his promise. Those things that you struggle with, those areas that you can't change, that direction that you need in your life, I want to come and be a part of your life. I want you to come and know me, and I will come and live in you, and I will begin to empower and change you from the inside out and give you the power to do what you could never do on your own. It's the second thing that Paul became new that day. And then finally, there's a third thing that became new in that day, and it's a new future. For the Jews of Paul's day, they saw all of human history in two segments. There was the current age, this, this current age that's characterized by sin and rebellion and death and destruction and Satan. And then there is the coming age. The coming age is when Messiah would come, break into human history, turn all wrongs to right, the kingdom of God would come. And for Paul, the goal of his life was to live his life in such a way that he would be proclaimed righteous at the end of time and be part of the kingdom age. But the reality was, is up to that time, no one really knew what was going to happen in the future. If you think of this in terms of human history, almost all cultures at all times have believed in an afterlife. That's why the Egyptians built the pyramids and and, and created the mummies and put things in the coffins with the mummies. It's why the Greeks would tell tales of the river Styx. It's why uh, the Elysium fields of, of Rome. It's the, throughout history, most people have sensed that there's more to us than meets the eye and that we will continue on after death. But no one's really known if that's true. It's all theory. And even if it is true, we don't know what the next life is like. Is it physical? Is it embodied? Is it just spirits, disembodied spirits? But with the resurrect, when, when Paul met the resurrected Jesus, all those questions were answered. Because the resurrected Jesus was there alive in his new body that was glorious, so brilliant with light, it was overpowering. And what the apostle Paul learned is that the future is real, that there is a new heavens and a new earth coming, and it's physical, and it's real, and it's tangible, and it's completely something within our grasp. And, and what he began to understand is this is the promise that Jesus made, that the resurrection of Jesus was not simply a one-off miracle, to prove that he was who he claimed to be. It was that. But the reason God had become man, died for our sins, and rose again, the resurrection was to conquer death itself. And so Jesus and his body is the prototype of the new bodies that are coming. His body is version 2.0. And this is the body that we will receive as followers of Jesus, when he comes back to turn all wrongs to right, new heavens, new earth, we will receive those bodies to live with him, rule with him for all the future and the new creation that's physical, tangible, and real. In fact, this is how Paul finishes the chapter. If you have your Bibles, or they're on your note sheet in 320, it says, second sentence, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. In other words, he's King Jesus now, but when he comes back, he's going to take that power and rule. He will transform and our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. See, when he met Jesus, what he realized is that you've got one of those, right? You're not a disembodied spirit. You really died. You really rose. You've got a real body. And Paul says, that's what I really, that's why you died is to conquer the biggest problem in the human race. You see, when you came in today, I don't know what you thought your biggest problem was. But I can guarantee you that whatever you think your biggest problem is, is not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is whether it's a year from now, 10 years from now, or 50 years from now, you're going to die. That's your biggest problem. And this is the problem Jesus came to solve. He died to make a way for you to be forgiven, but he rose to be the first step in the recreation of the whole cosmos. And when you give your life to Christ, you know that you will not only have a new relationship now and a new power now, you will know that you will have a new future and a new body for the next life that's coming. And so on that day when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Jesus, it changed all things. All things became new. New relationship, new life, new future. Now the question I have for you is there on your note sheet on the back page. And the question that Easter forces on us is how will you respond? How will you respond to the reality of the resurrection? See, the reality is that Paul, before he met Jesus, was a skeptic. He thought the whole account of Easter morning was a sham. He thought it was a damnable heresy. That in his service of God, he needed to do everything possible to root it out. And then he met Jesus, and it changed everything. And what Paul did that day is he bowed his knee to his true king. And he asked him to forgive him for his rebellion. And he came under his leadership. And he accepted Jesus' mission for his life. And, And as he did that, he received this gift new relationship with God, new power for life and a new future. But the question for you on this Easter is how will you respond to the reality of the resurrection? God, we're just thankful for the death and resurrection of Jesus that gives us a new relationship with you, not based on our performance, based on yours for a new power to live a whole new life for the new future that we know is assured. We give our life to you. And so we come to you this Easter weekend, and while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk to you here today in different spots. And I want to start with those of you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You've come to Jesus. You've experienced his transforming power. And the question I have for you is are you living today in the power of the resurrection? You know, he has come to give you the power to leave the past behind and move into the future that you have to live the life you were called to live. And so 
The question is, are you living in that power? Or there are rooms in the spiritual house of your life that you say, no, don't come in. Don't come into that room. That's where I watch the porn. Don't come into that. That's where I do the bills. That's where I control my finances. Hey, don't come into this room, Mark, marriage. That's where I'm in control and my anger is, is ruling. Hey, don't come into this room. This is messing with my job, and I keep that separate from my spiritual life. Or don't come into this room. You know, Jesus came to rescue us from all our rooms. And he came to bring his power and his resurrection into every room, to bring it from death to life, that we might live the lives we were created to live. And so in this Easter weekend, my question for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is are you living in the power of the resurrection? Is there any room in your life where you have said to Jesus, no, I don't want you in. I, I want to live in death in that room. I want to hold on to the death. I want to hold on to the darkness. Is there a room that you need to open up the door and invite him in that the power of the resurrection would come in and set you free to become the person you're created to be? And next I want to talk to those of you, our heads are still bowed. That I know this happens on Easter, that there's always people here that for whatever reason have made their way back. That they once, um, maybe you once knew Jesus. There was once a time where you asked him into your life. There was a time in your life you began to experience his life-transforming power. But however it happened, maybe someone hurt you, maybe bad bad experiences with Christians, maybe old sin pulled you back, an old addiction drew you in. It was a relationship with a non-believer that led you away romantically from Christ. But somehow, some way, you found yourself now in a far and distant land, and you're just wondering, is there any way back? After all he did for me, I rejected him again. And there's a room at the table for me, or have I gotten too far, too many sins, too many things? Maybe I can come on Easter. Maybe I can sit in the back row. Maybe that's okay, but I'm not sure if there's really room for a new relationship with God, a new power of the resurrection, a new future. Maybe I've gone too far. And if that's you, I want to remind you of the story of the prodigal son and how when he came to his senses and came home, his father didn't just receive him back. He ran to receive him back. I don't care how far you've gone or what you've done. If you want to come home and you're ready to come under the leadership of King Jesus, there is a place at the table for you. And wouldn't it be awesome if this Easter you responded to his call and you stopped listening to the lies and you came home and you reconnected relationally with Jesus and you were restored in his power and you began to live this life for the next life and it all came together this weekend. And finally, I want to talk to those of you who are here that you've never given your life to Christ. You may have come today for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's Easter and that's what you do. Maybe it's your neighbor. You just got tired of telling him no for so many times. But for whatever reason, you're here. And honestly, when you walked in today, you saw this as a skeptic. You saw the story of Jesus and his resurrection on the level of the Easter bunny. All religions have their myth. This is the one of Christianity. But something has happened today, and it's more than the story. It's more than Paul's account. 
that something has happened where you sense that Jesus is here and he's calling to you and honestly there's something inside of your chest right now. Your heart is beating. You sense God calling and he is calling to you. And you're trying to decide what to do. And I want to ask you that question that we started into the message with, how will you respond to the reality? Because today you can no longer say it's not real. You know it's real. And you have fears. There's things you have to leave behind just like Paul did. There may be certain sins. There may be certain values. There may be certain opinions. And you know that if you're going to come under the leadership of King Jesus, you have to let him go. But I promise you, once you make that decision, you will never be sorry. And you will look back on all those things that you held on to as scubala in your life. It's the old life. And so I'm inviting you today on Jesus' behalf. I'm speaking for him. I'm inviting in his name that you would lay down your old life. You would come under the leadership and you would receive his gift of a new relationship with God. All sins forgiven. All crimes committed. Total amnesty. A relationship with God that's real and fresh and genuine and authentic. And it's life changing. I'm offering you the power of life on his behalf. The power to change, to grow, to become who you're, you're designed to be. And I'm offering you his promise on a new future, a new body, a new creation. And that you can know right here and now that you have passed from death to life because of your relationship with the life giver. And so if you're here today and you're ready to follow Jesus and you want to ask him into your life, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. And if this is your prayer of your heart. I'm going to ask you to pray along with me in your mind or in your heart, under your breath. God will hear you if you're sincere. And so pray with me. Dear Jesus, I ask you into my life. I thank you for your death and resurrection for me. I pray for a new relationship with you. I pray for the forgiveness of all my sins. I ask you to forgive me for my rebellion. I come under your leadership. I ask you for the gift of your spirit to come into my life, change me from the inside out, give me the power of the resurrection and the assurance of a spot in the new creation for me. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. First of all, if you just prayed that prayer, I want to be the first to welcome you to the kingdom of God. And secondly, I would ask that in just a minute we'll be collecting our offering and doing some final worship. And what I would ask is that inside your program is a small little card called the Connect card. I'd ask you to fill it out on the front and on the back. Just write me a message and say, Mike, I prayed the prayer. I asked Christ in my life. I'll know what you mean. And this week, I will reach out to you. We will send you a letter with just some basic first baby step instructions of how to follow Jesus. I think you'll find really helpful. And so, Lord, we come today. We come in the name of Jesus. We come not based on our righteousness, our deeds, our background, our resume. We come to you boldly in your presence based on the death of Jesus for us. 
And we come today, not on our own, but in the power of your spirit. And we come today thanking you for your strength, your strength that's raised us from the dead spiritually. We come today to celebrate the power of God in our lives and the future you have. And so we pray as we bring you our offering and as we worship, we pray that we would, you would make us strong in you. Your strength becomes our strength as we worship and serve you together. And all of God's people said, amen. The power of the resurrection of Jesus is not a one-off miracle that happened just that one day outside Jerusalem on that early spring morning. The power of the resurrection is something for every day. The reason he died and rose is so that we could die with him to our old life and rise with him to a new life. That's what baptism is all about, a visual picture of what happens to the man or woman who comes to Jesus. It's a symbolic representation. We die with him to the old life. We rise with him to the new in the power of the Spirit. My prayer for you this week is that you would ever go deeper in knowing Christ, the Messiah, and knowing the power of his resurrection. If you don't have a church home, if you live within 30 minutes or maybe 300 miles, we would love to have you come journeying with us. We do this every weekend. We come together, we study under the leadership of King Jesus, how to follow him, how to tap into the power of his resurrection, how to change our lives. We're in the midst of a series right now that's called Epic, Living the Vision. And what we're learning is that when we come to Christ, we find out that we have been chosen before time began to be part of this epic reclamation project where God's restoring all of creation to what it will one day be. And there's a specific purpose for our lives. And we're entering into a brand new section where the Apostle Paul is going to get very practical now. He's going to talk about what does it look like to be transformed into the image of Jesus, to become the people we're created to be. We're going to be talking next week about integrity, the next week about anger, the next week about work ethic and generosity, the next week about the power of words and then compassion and kindness and forgiveness. It's going to get really practical. And so if you don't have a church home, we'd love for you to join us. As we leave today, a couple things I want to remind you, first of all, that over to my right, we always have a prayer team after every service. If you have anything you'd like prayer for, just head on down there. Secondly, if you would do me a favor, we're expecting another big service. And so if you are leaving on Iverson Road out here, we'd ask that when you get to the bottom to Santa Susana, that instead of turning left, you turn right. Head up. It's a beautiful little drive, uh, about 15 miles. No, it's good. Uh, about five minutes, uh, four actually. And uh, you're going to top to Rocky Peak uh, on-ramp, off-ramp, and you can go either way to see me or back to San Fernando Valley. And that'll help us as people are kind of evacuating the, the parking lot here, making room for the next service. Now, this week, my prayer for you is that you would know the power of the resurrection. My prayer for you is you know that Christ is no, not only living, that if you've given your life to Christ, he's living in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. In fact, in his letter 30 years later to the Ephesians that we're studying, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know the power that is available to you through Jesus Christ. This is the same power that raised Christ from the dead, and not just raised him from the dead, but seated him as the leader of all creation over all power and authority, that power is accessible to you. And so may this be a week you rejoice in the relationship with God that's not based 
on your performance on his, that you rejoice in his love for you, his passion over you, that you rejoice in the power available, that this week you would pursue God, you would know Christ more and the power of his resurrection, and you would live this day and every day for that day. For the same king who came once is coming again to restore all of creation, and we're going to rule with him on that day. God bless you. We'll see you next week. <laughs>